Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. I'm Arazu. And we have, um, it's been an interesting week, actually. It's been a good week oh, for Bad and Bitchy. It's been a busy week. Yeah. It's been good. Yeah. So uh, we have our, we had a regular Hill Times piece come out on Wednesday. And I wrote this week about performative allyship. Um, so we're updating the website to including, to include our weekly articles paywall free. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's on our list. So look out for that. Uh, let us know what kind of content you want to see. It's the last time the house is sitting (laughs) and I use the word sitting very loosely, (laughs) (laughs) Is supposed to be, I believe, on June 22nd. Yeah. Uh, and after that, we're just going to be doing a lot of, we're going to be trying out some stuff. So we need feedback from you guys and let us know what works, what you like, what you'd like to see. Uh, all of our social media contact information will be in the show notes. This week, I was on The Current discussing CERB and body cams. And let me tell you, uh, Althea and I you got You were in- great, by, by the way. You were <laughs> great on The Current. Yeah, I loved it. I was not having, like, the whole... <laughs> Althea- you were done. I was done. <laughs> I really was. And there is, everybody, there is an audible sigh, okay, that, that even makes me laugh, even though I know <laughs> that it's coming. So that will be in show notes. Check that out. It's also posted on Facebook. Uh, YWCA recognize Arzu as their young woman of distinction for 2020, who has, quote, fiercely advocated to challenge systemic barriers to young women's and gender diverse youth's success within politics. Yes. Thank you. So. <laughs> And Aaron, who shall not be left out, has a series of videos to teach you all about defunding the police because she is doing the work that I just don't have the patience to do. And <laughs> so literally and she's doing a very good job. She's doing I, a very I good job. The video videos. I was like, OK, OK, that's really great. Yeah. So you could see that on Instagram. You can follow Aaron at Aaron G. That's G-E-E, not the letter G. Um, so, yeah. And uh, for some admin, we, every week, so we're going to ask you for money. So get used to it. Uh, <laughs> give us your money. Give us Do your it. money. Well, we just, we just gave you all a list of why yeah. we're, we're asking for money. And like we say, um, we are sort of like a podcast where... We ask money from people who have money and not necessarily from everybody under the sun because we know times are hard, okay? And as we get into this summer and the way the economy shapes up, women especially are going to be more susceptible in this recession. Um, 
So if you do not, if you cannot give us money, uh, please, please, please share, tweet, retweet, repost, uh, like our page, subscribe to the podcast. It's free. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. There's, we're literally everywhere. Uh, and yeah, just please just keep sharing, keep talking, keep taking our content and having some conversations. I, I think like part of this purpose for us is that of a public service. And yeah. we need you to share and disperse this content so that you guys are equipped to have the right conversations. Okay, so let's start this um, episode. This Week in Feminism. So, ha. Huh. Oh, <sighs> we tried very hard to keep this to like the same length as every other podcast. We'll episode, see how that but goes. Again, we had, this week was so busy, but... Yeah, 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 I'm glad that we... Yeah. So this week in feminism, racism is the reason coronavirus killed UK BAME. So the UK uh, describes black, Asian, and minority ethnic people with the acronym B-A-M-E, BAME. Don't, I, I, I just I report like the news. I don't <laughs> like it, but hey. So, racism and discrimination suffered by Britain's black, Asian, and minority ethnic people has contributed to the high death rates from COVID-19 in those communities, an official inquiry has found. It confirms that the impact of COVID-19 has replicated existing health inequalities and, in some cases, exacerbated them. So people from black ethnic groups were most likely to be diagnosed as positive. Death rates from COVID-19 were highest among people of black and Asian ethnic groups. This is the opposite to what was seen in previous years when the mortality rates were lower in Asian and black ethnic groups than white groups. Therefore, the disparity in COVID-19 mortality between ethnic groups is opposite of that. So... What we're looking at, right, what what I'm talking about or what I'm reading from is Public Health England's National Inquiry into the disparities in the risks and outcomes of COVID-19. And after a lot of public outcry about the disparities along racial lines in terms of COVID deaths, uh, a public inquiry was commissioned, and here we have the reports, which prove that racism killed the radio star. <laughs> I couldn't help that. I'm sorry, I couldn't help that. Um, well, that should be the title of the, the episode. <laughs> yes, it should. Thank you. <laughs> racism killed the radio star. I love it. Okay. Racism killed radio star that's that's the title <laughs> literally done as an an analysis of survival among confirmed covid 19s and using more detailed ethnic groups shows that accounting for the effect of sex age deprivation and region people of bangladeshi ethnic 
ethnicity had around twice the risk of death than people of white British ancestry. People of Chinese, Indian, Pakistani, other Asian, Caribbean, and other black ethnicity had between 10% to 50% higher risk of death when compared to white British. Wow. That's a lot. So um, there are a couple of reasons why that was described in the report. Firstly, people of BAME communities are likely to be at risk of acquiring the infection. This is because BAME people are more likely to live in urban areas, overcrowded housing, in deprived areas. So we're talking lower income at lower income communities and have jobs that expose them to higher risk. So we're talking about essential workers, especially in healthcare, by the way. Yeah. Healthcare, taxi drivers, grocery stores, all of those service jobs. Even though not all of healthcare is a service job. Anyway, um, people of BAME groups are also more likely than people of white British ancestry to be born abroad which means they face additional barriers in accessing services that are created by, for example, cultural and language differences, just access in terms of immigration policy and uh, citizenship policy and who has access to what is a huge issue, uh, which makes migrants particularly susceptible and vulnerable. Secondly, people of Bang communities are also likely to be at increased risk of poor outcomes once they acquire the infection. For example, think about co- comorbidities, which increase the risk of poor outcomes from COVID-19 are more common among cer- certain ethnic groups. People from Bangladeshi and Pakistani backgrounds have higher rates of car- cardiovascular disease, and people of Black Caribbean and Black African ancestry have higher rates of hypertension. So, now, um, before, so this is something that has been long coming. I've been waiting for this, actually. My aunt, who lives in London, uh, w- was actually talking to me about this about a week and a half ago. So I'm happy to see it come out. Uh, But it's not only in England. You have a note on black neighborhoods in Toronto that are hardest hit by COVID, um, Arzu. And it is anchored in racism. It is. Um, So a global news analysis found a strong association between high coronavirus rates and low income conditions of work, visible minority status and low levels of education in Toronto neighborhoods. And there was an even stronger association between neighborhoods with a high number of coronavirus cases and those with a higher population of black people. And Mm -hmm. this same study found similar results in Montreal, where Uh, Neighborhoods with high numbers of immigrants, refugees, and lower-income people were hardest hit. And again, we know that this is all as a result of systemic racism and chronic underfunding of our healthcare sector, our economy, uh, like our economy and the investment priorities of our elected representatives. I think it was just last year that Doc Ford announced big cuts to Toronto's public health. He cut almost, I think, around uh, $1 billion from Toronto Public Health that put critical life-saving public health programs such as infectious disease um, programs 
um, in Toronto, and it's it's really funny how it all turned out. I mean, it's not funny; people are losing their lives, but at the same time, it's really helping us see those direct lines between the polit- direct lines between the political priorities of our elected officials and how they literally, in different ways, impact Black lives and racialized lives. And again, we we know that aside from uh, in addition to uh, black communities, it is indigenous people, it is people without status, um, migrant workers who are really at risk. Again, going back to the same uh, public health determinants that you shared, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the quality of life, the quality of healthcare, the quality of housing that you can access, they do all impact um, how, how, we are, how we're hit during this pandemic. And also, I think the, the results and the responses as well right going back to crb we know that women uh, women especially racialized women young women were the hardest hit by the economical the economic backlash of this pandemic and who've been one of the biggest groups um accessing the crb um program uh that which is basically the financial assistance program from the federal government so there are so many moving pieces that need to be applied for us to really understand how we can improve our healthcare system outcomes but how we can integrate anti-racism feminism and equity uh principles into how our healthcare systems operate so that we're not only prepared to deal with pandemics but that when they hit uh, it is not the most marginalized members of our communities and our society who keep paying the price for it. Well, the Public Health Agency of Canada needs to start collecting that data, first of all. Yep. They need to start yep. collecting the racialized data. Um, and that is firmly within the control of this Trudeau government. Yeah. And so, we see that everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. With the police system, with the healthcare system, how mm-hmm. erasing our experiences, erasing the impact of pandemics, whether it be the uh, police violence and police brutality pandemic, or whether it be something of a disease like coronavirus, not having that information is not providing our leaders, our policymakers with with the clarity that they need to be able to create policies and systems that work for us, right? Because, you know, you talk about a lot of these issues that we're facing, when it comes to data, when it comes to tangible results, it's literally a black, dark void that no one can understand unless you're in community, unless you've seen the experiences. But we know that, again, the way the colonial and the hierarchical way that our systems are set up, they are rely they rely on scientific quote unquote fact and data and our experiences and oral conversations and what communities know and do tell the governments is not always valid. So again, I, I under I completely agree with your point that we need to have race based data collection to kind of back these up. Exactly. And um I also want to point out that what this uh, this research was done by Global, by the way, it wasn't done by a report. It's not even a report. It was just like literally Global pulling together the, the data and analyzing it. And which just lets me know how easily you can you can actually put this together that the data is out there and we refuse to use it. It's no, it's, no, um, it's no surprise to me that the U.S., Britain, and Canada all have the same issue. 
all have the same racist system. Because guess where those systems came from? Yep. Okay. So (laughs) the fact that these, these, um, uh, like, inequalities are being replicated throughout the white, like, once British world should surprise no one. Because from that, all things shit spring eternal. Okay. (laughs) So um, I think it's very important to to also point out that uh, these issues. So we're talking about structural change now. Structural change is also systematic change. So it's not just the policies. It's how. It's not just the what. It's the how. And um, what I see is that, so (laughs) what we're seeing now is the how, and we're also seeing that there is, everything is connected. So the, the people who live in overcrowded housing are going to be the people who are exposed to higher risk, who are the people who get charged more for, um, for for breaking, breaking social distancing rules, breaking social distancing rules, exactly because they're more surveilled. Yeah, but they have less access to the things to help them to make them better. Like yeah. how many how many how many people do you think in migrant communities have a family doctor? Zero, I'm sure. You know, yeah. these things matter. The access matters, and what Canada's really good at is putting up barriers to entry. That's Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, next. Um, So, white people got slightly better over five years. And when I say slightly, I really do mean slightly. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, white people got slightly better at caring about black lives. So, the New York Times posted... um, Upshot of the New York Times, which is more of their, I guess, uh, social society meets economics meets okay. whatever data or something uh, vertical. They published a piece on how public opinion has moved on Black Lives Matter. And I have to say. I remember. I mean, I'm skeptical, but go ahead. Yeah, like, (laughs) of course, because, you know, white people. So, uh, like, I am pleasantly surprised Mm. and hopeful um, that white people are at least, at least going on record. That's, That's it. That's what I'm impressed at. They're actually going on record, okay? We have the receipts now. We have, exactly. I keep telling people, (laughs) people are like, well, they're not going to do anything. And I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, you know, when politicians say blah, 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 okay? People are like, oh, they're just using us. Of course they are. They're politicians, you know? That's what they do. But now you have them on record. And now you have receipts. So anytime you could say, actually... The prime minister said, if you're working in the public service and they want to be anti-black and they don't want to recognize anti-blackness, you could say, well, the prime minister, your boss said, 
You know what I mean? There's something yeah. about using people's words against them that is just so it's 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 using their own language yeah them, you know exactly it. it's so beautiful it really is anyway so public opinion on race and criminal justice issues has been steadily moving left since the first protest ignited over the fatal shootings of trayvon martin and michael brown and since the death of george floyd and police custody uh, in police custody on May 25th, public opinion on race, criminal justice, and the Black Lives Mover Ma- Matter movement has left leapt forward. A, Ma- a Monmouth University poll, I don't even know where that is, uh, found that 76% of Americans consider racism and discrimination, quote, a big problem, up 26 points from 2015. The poll found that 57% of voters thought the anger behind the demonstrations was fully justified, while a further 21% called it somewhat justified. Polls show that a majority of Americans believe that the police are more likely to use deadly force against African Americans, and that there's a lot of discrimination against black Americans in society. Back in 2013, when Black Lives Matter began, a majority of voters disagreed with those statements. I remember those days. Yeah. Yeah. So this is interesting because um, just last week, I we were talking about the NFL and how yeah. that shift happened just so quickly yeah. because of, because of, of course, um, like the context that we're in now. And so this is just uh, the, I guess, the survey or the data underpinning to show that these issues are moving quickly. Remember gay marriage? That moved quickly, yeah. too. Yeah. And I just think that it's too, as to what you said last week, all of the activism around these issues, these people, these activists have been preparing when everybody was yeah. telling them they were crazy when they wanted to defund the police 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, everybody told them they were idiots. Okay, I'm pretty sure. It's really, again, a testament to the hard work that's been happening, right? It's been, this has been brewing for so long. And again, it is time. And I feel like it, 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 things happen in movements, but I, I think a lot of times we just see the wave, right? We don't see like the turmoil underneath. And like, it, it, again, I, I, I understand, like we talked about this last week too, right? It's like, it's work that continues to happen. And now it's that even the, the rate of exchange and conversations between like black and indigenous communities and the knowledge building and the knowledge sharing with other racialized communities, I, I think it, it has um, become so much faster and ideas are just like people are like jumping off of each other when it comes to kind of learning and talking so much in the past week that i'm like oh my god because right now i mean a lot of the tweet like a lot of the tweets and a lot of the instagram posts that i'm seeing at least a lot of them seem to be much deeper and structural and uh, instead of like surface level in so many spaces right i'm not talking about the corporations that just want to save their ass and say hey we posted about this we didn't say silent i'm talking about the people in the communities and the organizations 
and people who who we always knew were quote unquote on our side when it came to social justice, but who are now showing, okay, I'm learning something. Oh, I learned something, so now I'm gonna share it. So I think that's also hap- it's happening at a higher rate, um, which I think again contributes to this sudden shift um, in um, ideas and in mindsets. Um, when it comes to the voters in the U.S. as well. So um, one one of the things that the article pointed out is that white liberals have moved so far left on questions of... I don't like... So you know what? No. There's, I don't like you the framing... You can't say white liberal and moving left in the yeah, same sentence. Thank you. Those are two separate things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay? Because as soon as I started reading it, I was like, this, does, this shit does not make sense. Okay. Listen. I was like, did the Liberal Party of Canada write this? No. Like, this yeah, I know. By them? What's happening? I know. But 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 the thing is, um, and the reason is because I really do think the only reason they got woke is because Black Lives Matter happened. Right. Yeah. And it is Black Lives Matter that did that work. And has been doing that work for seven years. Why these people yeah. got woke? So this idea that white liberals got woke on their own is a joke. Second of all, the idea that this is from Vox, by the way, this part, this yeah. great—they call it the Great Awakening. Um, no. Um, the the uh, so, but they did say it began roughly with the 2014 protests in Fergan. Ferguson when activists it did not roughly begin it began then like yeah it. yeah yeah when activists took the advantage of ubiquitous digital video and routine routine use of social media to expose the national audience in a visceral way to what otherwise might have been a routine local news story really what black lives matter did is that they figured out how to build a movement using social media and they 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 learn and these are also like let's pretend that they didn't learn i also want to say that tactics of activism are also passed down and passed through communities right yeah so in the so tactics of organizing and activism um occur I'm pretty sure there was some pretty good civil rights movement stalwarts who they learned tactics from. Exactly. And right? it's not just social media. This this was underground organizing. This was like yeah. Black Lives Matter activists and their supporters, their black supporters, putting their lives on the line, putting themselves before the police and raising the bar on what we should expect from our leaders and from our quote unquote justice systems. Yeah. And I, I think this really just like it's like, oh, yeah, they knew how to use social media. So they got a buzz. I'm like, no, the social media was a part of it. But this was literally people on the streets as we see today. Yeah. And yeah. Th- yeah. Yeah. They and they, but they're but the media, their media savvy is extraordinary. Yeah. It's literally yeah, extraordinary. Really Think about Baton Rouge. Think about that iconic yeah. photo with a black woman just standing yeah. there peacefully, and yeah. and and um, a a, bo- a bunch of militarized police losing their minds around her. Yeah, and the strength yeah. in that photo is that movement right um not only that think about how they fucked up hillary clinton 
Yep. Black Lives Matter is the reason that Hillary Clinton had to get real on progressive issues. Yeah. So you should be thanking her. It wasn't Bernie. Again, they're raising the It was the literally bar. Black yeah. Lives Matter. It was not your your favorite hero, Bernie. Because yeah. it went before everything shifted in 2016 when they interrupted her fundraising dinner and talked yeah. about Super Predator and asked her to apologize. And then everybody was like, everybody else outside the black community was like, what's this Super Predator? I remember thinking, oh, they went there. Yeah. I remember thinking that. They went there because we heard uh, some of us who were old enough heard the Clintons malign black men. Okay. Yeah. In in their in their criminal justice reform or whatever the fuck they did. You know, we heard that that impacted a community. Mm -hmm. And finally, a community had a voice. And that's what's so amazing. Black Lives Matter gave our community a modern voice, not these old fucks, okay, who 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 are like too happy to to sit at the table, be happy that they're invited and fucking are happy with crumbs from masses table. I'm not here for it. And I'm tired of them because they're a problem too. black gatekeepers. I have thoughts. Okay. So, um, so anyway, white, I also don't like couching racial and racial issues as a left issue. Okay. No. Black people mm-hmm. don't care about left and right when, it, when our humanity comes. This is all white framing. Yeah. This is framing by a white media who, who, who doesn't fucking get it and doesn't want to get it. I'm also trying to frame like Democrats and liberals as people who are becoming more and more progressive or quote-unquote left-leaning when we know that neither of these centrist parties are actually willing to take on the structural shifts and challenges that come with addressing racism and anti-blackness, right? Because if you don't have progressive like economic policy if you don't have progressive healthcare policy again we talked about this you can't challenge anti-blackness unless you're willing to really put your money put your anti-racist strategies to use when it comes to creating policy and making decisions that impact the lives of black black and racialized people at every stage of of our society right it's not just about like an anti-racism policy that's enacted through your whatever like social social impact ministry is not going to um, change shit, <laughs> right? It has to be integrated into every single budget decision. It has to be integrated into every policy response that you uh, make. And unless you're willing to do that, I'm sorry. Like there is no way that for us to kind of e- even talk about like centrists and liberals and Democrats even. Uh, having uh, one idea that could be considered leftist or progressive i just i i just don't think they they deserve a pat on the back no. white liberals are some of the most are just as racist like they just are like let me tell you something when bernie was running all those fucking bernie bros that want to come in and tell a black woman what the fuck a black woman who works in racial justice by the way me mm-hmm. okay who the, the number of times they wanted to over that they want to white explain my situation to yeah. me i'm like you're all a fucking a bunch of racists okay because yeah. it is what is with white people and dominating everything especially what they know nothing about if you cannot enter 
as a, a, a space with racialized people without dominating, you're the problem. I just want to say that. Oh my that. god, you know what I'm think who I'm thinking about? Who? All the white women who supported Jagmeet Singh. Oh. To tell. They would literally they would literally walk up to racialized supporters of let's say Nikki Ashton, one of the white candidates. Yeah. Um and uh, they would be like, you know, like we should really be holding racialized men up. We should be supporting racialized men. Jagmeet's going to be the first racialized leader of a political party in Canada. Like, you should be supporting him. And all of these like brown girls were like, yes, please do tell me how I should uh, make political decisions and what's good for Speaking me. Like, like this white feminism. I'm like, okay, first of all, your obsession with our men is creepy and gratifying. <laughs> AF. Like, oh, we're gonna get to that later in the in the episode. But, but carry secondly, on. Secondly, <laughs> again, it's the white splaining, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, like stop. Like, okay, okay. So you basically just told me that the only reason you're voting for Jagmeet is because he's brown and you don't want to sound racist. Um, but also, yeah. Again, it's it, it's the patronization and it's the yeah it it, it is very violence. It's it's disenfranchising. It is, and it happens in our in like the Canadian political spectrum as well in like much more violent and evident ways. But again, because we're so obsessed about talking the polarization and this like terrible two party system in the U.S., we rarely get to look inward and look at the mess that is partisan politics in Canada. Well, that's my problem with um, the NDP in general. Uh, I, it's a bunch of white saviors. Thank I don't you. Wanna, I don't want to negate the work of black and racialized people in that party yeah. because I see it. And there are some amazing they racialized rep- folks, yeah. whether as elected officials or organizers. But let's not kid ourselves. The NDP is a white party. <laughs> And the NDP has a lot of work to do when it comes to anti-racism, right? Like some of the things I hear from like organizers in the NDP, let me tell you, I would never hear in the liberal party because the liberals are smarter to know what sounds actually racist and what's not. You know, they're much, you know, they do it behind the closed doors. They make sure nobody hears it. They make sure it's on a one-on-one conversation. And with the NDP, honey, oh no, it's, oh, we have all of the brown people in the room, so we can't be that bad, right? You see, okay. And I went off. I snapped, but like I wasn't planning on snapping like that today, but I just had to say that. Well, well, hence what this space is for. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have similar issues with the NDP. The NDP likes to recreate um, racist and sexist um, and, you know, gender biased uh, structures. They have not done the work of... They think that because... Jugmeet Singh is at the top that everything's fine. And I'm mm. like, I don't know. I see a lot of massage noir in that party. I really do. Yep. So so I'm just like, mm, you're marginally better, maybe, and maybe not, because you're just like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. At least the liberals we know. You're you're watching your back with them. When the conservatives like, you won't I even enter with, the space because they're just yeah. racist. You know? Do I agree with the political stances and positioning of the NDP? Yes. In most cases, yes. In like ninety nine point nine percent of the cases. But do I also believe that the NDP, like every other political party in Canada, is based on a hierarchical, patriarchal, and colonial system of organizing that continues to be reproduced by white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
right? And I feel like it's the fact that people can't separate the two and to really look yeah. inward and to talk about again and we've talked about this it's like you can't apply liberal organizing to progressive and leftist ideology because you'll end up reproducing the same systems regardless of what your end goal is say that again for the people in the back <laughs> yeah um you know like you you need to again it's about feminism it's practice it's about inclusion in practice it's not about what's on the platform it's not about what's on the website it's about how you actually are able to bring people together in ways that are subversive and in ways that are inclusive um and are like work exactly in opposition to what we currently see in our political organizing, whether it be on the you know in social justice and grassroots movement, or whether it be in a partisan and institutional space, it's really about kind of sitting down and saying, talking about, okay, what are the real structural and practical changes that we need to be making to integrate anti-racist or inclusive practice in our politics and in our day-to-day work. Well, on that note, <laughs> I well, I I I I, I don't know what to say stuff. after that. So I'm just gonna go on. Like I feel like that's that's it. Like there you go. So um, yeah. <laughs> now I'm like I have that's nothing it. Thank to you say. For listening. I'm gonna leave now. I, I I'm like you. Your your job is done. Like <laughs> okay. So. Unfortunately, in Canada, though, our zoo, uh, white people have not gotten better. Nope. <laughs> well, well, let me rephrase. Canadian media flexes in racism. Mm-hmm. So this was a really shitty week for Canadian media, by the way. Like last week was terrible. These people are tripping. And let me just tell you, I've like three different pieces so the first is CBC, Stallworth, and host Wendy Mesley. Wendy Mesley this week <laughs> was suspended amid an investigation into, quote, careless language, end quote, during discussion of racial issues. So CBC News host Wendy Mesley had a show called, and I do mean had, <laughs> a show called <laughs> The Weekly with Wendy Mesley, a 30-minute Sunday morning news show from CBC Toronto. Well, CBC has removed the show. Uh, no, 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 sorry. They've removed her from hosting the show. Let me just be clear about that. So Canada Land broke this, and um, basically... This is how the story went. So during preparations for an episode about Black Lives Matter uh, and the media coverage of racial issues, apparently Wendy said something. And she, quote, used a word that should never be used. Now, (sighs) (laughs) now... I just want to apologize to our listeners for that, but like it literally just left my mouth. I had no control over that. Do you see? Do you see <laughs> oh how I God. came up with the eye roll on the current? Because I just couldn't. It just kind of escaped. <laughs> exactly. I'm okay. done. Exactly. So, 
Apparently, CBC's head of public affairs, Chuck Thompson, said in a statement last Thursday, uh, senior management within CBC News were made aware of an incident involving Wendy Mesley. While we investigate further, Wendy will not be hosting the weekly. Always respecting the privacy of our employees. We have nothing more to add. See, this is the bullshit that got them in trouble with Gameshi. I know. You see, it, they haven't learned since Gameshi. Okay. So anyway, Wendy then published uh, her, you know, <laughs> her, her side of the story. <laughs> the iPhone notes apology. And it read, in the context of an editorial discussion about current issues regarding race, I used a word that should never have been used. It was not aimed at anyone. I was quoting a journalist we were intending to interview on a panel discussion about coverage of racial inequality. I was careless with my language and wrong to say it. Regardless of my attention, I hurt people, and for that, I am sorry. I am also deeply ashamed. I immediately apologized to my coworkers and recognized this is a word that no one like me should ever use. I made a big mistake, and see, not even Twitter wants to open this bullshit. Um, I made a big mistake and promised to change my behavior. Okay, so first of all. Here's my problem. CBC never told us what was said. So then one can only speculate. And so I just assumed that she said the N-word at some point. Yeah. Okay. Because what other word is there that she could get pulled? She, Wendy Mesley, as Wendy Mesley, okay, could get pulled from a show but the N-word. And my guess is there... From what I from what I understand in my own little investigation, it was said during like an editorial meeting, so wow. it was said like big and broad. Okay, somebody got pissed off, said they're not dealing with this shit, and somebody complained. That's what yeah. happened. Okay, and because CBC has not learned since Gameshi, they did this little. They did this. This convoluted dance. dancing bullshit. And now all that's left is for me to say something like, wow, she must have called somebody the N-word. And she must have, she must have said it about a guest. <laughs> like, like, yeah. like I'm speculating because they gave me nothing. That's what happens. Anyway, so after this, um, you brought up Sachi Cole. Yeah. So Sachi so, had words. Yeah. So first of all, Sachi, hello. If you're listening to this, I'm a huge fan. I encourage you all to go and read her book. Uh, One day we will all be dead and none of this will matter. Uh, it's a collection of essays that kind of touch on her personal experiences of sexism, racism, and feminism. Go read that. But going back to Wendy Mesley and this racist BS, um... Sachi tweeted um, about like an exchange that she had with Wendy where Wendy basically called her and told her that if she wasn't nicer to John Kay on Twitter, she wouldn't have her on her Sunday panel show anymore. And So she's tone policing what- a woman of color and threatening yes. her. Okay, just to get that yeah. out of the way. And again, we know that like tone policing and like threatening women of color. I mean, it happened again, but <laughs> last week, 
um, with another person who we will be talking about. But basically what Wendy did was that she wasn't only attempting to assert power and dominance over Sachi, but she was also using a common uh, sexist and in a lot of situations racist tactic to silence. And again, as you said, demote women of color in positions of leadership and in the workplace. There's actually a study, but... Uh, studied by Kieran Snyder, uh, CEO and co-founder of Textio, which is an augmented writing platform that found out that when women challenge directly, um, as Sachi a lot of time does, when we talk about things that are making us uncomfortable, when things we talk speak speak up about things that are not all right, uh, we are often penalized for it, and we're called abrasive, and we're we're told that we're too direct, and that we need to again manage our tone. But we know that, you know, when we stop being team players and mediators as we are socialized and expected to be, um, we are suddenly, again, abrasive, we're too direct. And these are qualities that are often praised in men and actually define our mainstream understandings of leadership. So again, we see how someone like Wendy um, is contributing to the systems of sexism and racism by playing into that narrative knowingly. Like she, she made an active choice to call Sachi and let her know that, hey, you better act nicer or you're gonna lose the privilege of being on my show, right? Mm-hmm. And that really resonated with me personally because I'm often told by, um, especially people in Toronto's progressive politics. politics this is why I don't trust progressives. That, again, that I'm too abrasive and I have rough edges that need to be polished if I'm to ever work in politics again. Honey. And of course, what they're referring to is the fact that I continue to call out their sexism, their racism, their support for, you know, perpetrators of sexual violence and again, basically rape apologists. So it is something that people of color, women, women who speak up against the mainstream continue to pay for. And again, like it, it, when when I read that, I was like, of course, Wendy Mesley's going to use that, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the ways in which like white women, women in positions of power and privilege continue to gatekeep, right? Continue to try to police and tone down racialized women who are um who who are doing what they'll never in a million years be able to do and that is to stand up for ourselves and build power in that way instead of having to play this like white supremacist game of like climbing the ladder that's why that's why white women have to prove themselves before you yeah honestly because they they erect they dispense a lot of of violence in the workplace against women of color a lot of violence. And again, yeah, they are very aware of not just their position, but also the power dynamics, yeah, right? Because they're they aware of the power sexism. of whiteness. It's the same thing Amy yeah. Cooper did, you know? It's, it's what happened with Jessica Mulroney, right? Exactly. They, they, they play with this imbalance and they maintain it because they know that the, overth- the only thing they need to overcome to access white patriarchal power is their gender. Yeah. And once they've done that, why, once they've proven to the patriarchy that, hey, I got you by putting down other women, yeah. that's it. They've got the pass. That's when that's when they have the authority to 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 again then bring in the racism and the ableism and the ageism and all of those systems of oppression to maintain that um, system that has put them at the top. Well, here's what I didn't like. I didn't like how Sachi came out, told her truth, and next thing you know, Jonathan, I lost my my verification on Twitter, K, because I write <laughs> shit. Um, came came for her and was like p.s how badly did sachi bomb on that panel she's still what is this kvetching what is kve 
that okay according Girl. to sachi she was so ashamed that she threw up all over the street this is what this man is writing on twitter okay yeah. and he tagged her okay you're publicly shaming a woman of color thank you to assert dominance exactly like, this, is, this is historically what white people do <laughs> and and Jonathan Jonathan K is especially one who does it a lot because he tried to come for us yeah. and then we put him down and so whatever he so then Sachi screenshot like like she she screen caps it yeah puts it in then she has to she pulls up some receipts from 2015 okay. Oh God! That said exactly the opposite of what Jonathan said because what you see here is, I didn't know you had food poisoning that night. That's why she threw up. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I'm hoping you feel better. For what it's worth, I enjoyed our discussion with Tasha and Wendy, and thought you gave a very strong account of yourself. I think you denigrated solidarity between white people. Yes. How like John, like Jonathan K was prepared to go against what actually happened, what he knew was the truth to go and attack someone who's been like impacted by Wendy. Like that's that was a conscious choice again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the way these white people coordinate to fucking put down women of color is nothing new. It is the status yeah. quo. Okay? Yep. Anyway, let's move on. Shout out to Sachi, a friend of the pod, by the way. Because she, was, she yeah. was on our pod very early when we first started. So shout out to her. Let's move on to white woman number two, Jessica Mulrooney. Now this woman, <laughs> this woman, I cannot. I have been waiting. I have been waiting patiently to take this woman down. Okay? <laughs> waiting. And some might be it's like, the, it's the whiteness, it is right? the, it's the abject whiteness oozing white. out. It is literally <laughs> Jessica Mulrooney, okay, was born into wealth and power and privilege. And the only thing that was expected to, of her was to marry well. And then she married yeah. Ben. And we're all like, mm. well, I suppose in Canada, that's something. I have generally a sweet spot for a soft spot for Megan. So I'm like, okay. So I'm, my, so do I. I, I feel like <laughs> Megan is learning what it is to be black. Anyway, um, so I am on. Yeah, so basically. So f basically, <laughs> listen, I just want to say this. I didn't know Lipstick Alley was still popping. Okay. Because I found the whole, there was a nice little synopsis on Lipstick Alley. Okay, for those who don't know, Lipstick Alley used to be like purely beauty. Um, it's a forum, right? And a lot of, you know, black women, women of color would get on this forum and talk about celebrities and shows and, and beauty, especially like back in the day. Apparently, Lipstick Alley has blossomed into, if you want to know any celebrity gossip of blackness from a black perspective, LipstickAlley.com. That's what I know. That's the place to be. That's the place yeah. to be. Because they had, they had threads, okay? So yeah. here's the story. Black Canadian influencer Sasha Exeter just spoke out yeah. against Jessica Mulrooney, threatening to end her career so jessica Mulrooney threatened to end sasha's career because yeah. here's how the story went a few weeks ago sasha posted something this is on instagram 
on her Instagram yeah. stories, encouraging influencers to use their platform to speak about the Black Lives Matter movement. She did not call out anybody directly. This is pertinent to the story. However, being a white woman, as white women are. And th- thinking the world revolves around her. Right. Jessica Mulroney took it personally because she has not posted about Black Lives Matter. She instead has been promoting her new show, uh, that idiocy on CTV. I don't. I forgot the name of the new show. But I'll get I do there. Redo. I don't know what it, it's yes, about. I do whatever. redo. Thank you. So, um, so she, so she assumed that Sasha was calling her out and got offended. Then proceeded to go through the whole white fragility, white woman victimhood yeah. card. You want to know what yeah. a card is? She talked is? about how speaking, she basically told Sasha that like speaking about, uh, speaking up about this movement could impact my career and my show. And I'm like, well, like black people are paying for this shit with their lives. So like, do you really think that we care about your show right now? Jessica? Yeah, like, nobody cares. It's the tone deafness, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, then she proceeded to threaten Sasha in writing. So Jessica, I guess, DM bought, like totally DM'd her multiple messages, including the following. I have spoken to companies and people about the way you have treated me unfairly. You think your voice matters. Well, it only matters if you express it with kindness and without shaming people who are simply trying to learn good luck. Now, let's take that. Let's just let's just take that apart. One, I have spoken to companies and people. So, in other words, that's a threat. Yeah. Number two. It's a good luck making any more money. Right. Without my say-so. Right? Yeah. And that's where the power is flexed. Right? Yeah. Jessica is married to Ben Mulrooney. Ben Mulrooney works over at ET Canada. Apparently, Jessica and Ben have a lot of pull at Bell Media. So she felt empowered and used her power to flex and to harass, belittle, demean, and threaten a black woman. A single black mother. Ah, yeah. I'm getting there. So Sasha is yeah. a single mother, and this is her income. Her influencer... Yep thing is her income so sasha herself has already um put her livelihood um in 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 a risky situation by speaking out yeah right and she's a single mother now she has a white woman um like telling her now threatening threatening everything Apparently, she was so upset that she talked to her parents about it, and her parents were scared that she was going to yeah. lose everything. This is Jessica Mulrooney. Okay. So. And it shows, right, how it's like, again, like how, like at a time where like black people are literally putting their lives on the line, they're on the streets shouting Black Lives Matter, you made a point about telling a black woman that her voice doesn't matter. Like, how ridiculous, the, just the Karen-ness of it, the violence, the sheer violence 
of the whiteness that she is just oh i don't even know what to say anymore i too am upset about this how she's wielding that yeah very aware exactly like amy cooper very aware of the power dynamics of the situation that is repulsive and that is disgusting right yeah. and the way that she continues to center herself in the conversation victimize herself and vilify sasha as an angry black woman yeah oh no yeah no 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 that no. was not all she also threatened to sue her and then oh, couldn't speak. Oh, girl. girl, she couldn't even spell libel. <laughs> she spelled it wrong. We're like, wow. Threatened her. And so, yeah. you know, then Jessica goes into white victimhood and starts post- <gasps> posting a lot of Black Lives Matter content and um, decides to play the victim by shedding crocodile tears. Uh on her Instagram saying, oh, I'm just trying to learn. I'm so sorry. Oh, I don't blame me. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I like that is exactly what black women have, have been talking about. That's what we've been talking about ever since Bad and Bitchy started is this violence yeah. that white women like to like to dispense upon on black and and racial other racialized women whenever they feel like it and so i think that so it's funny in this lipstick alley post quote and i i remember this and i know every woman of color who has been othered feels this the the post in lipstick alley says this reminds me of all those times girls on the playground shed crocodile tears to get me in trouble when they couldn't get yeah. me to do what they wanted. The teachers always yep. sided with them, often without asking my side of the story, end quote. Hello, how many of us have had that experience? Yeah. They start this violence very fucking early. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's a spe- specific form of violence, like weaponizing their tears, like weaponizing the innocence that the world affords them to vilify specifically black women and then re- other racialized women. That is a very unique white woman tactic. Very, very. So um, because, you know, receipts, uh, the post also has... Uh, um all of the people all of all of the companies she does she's associated with yeah so good morning america dumped her city line dumped her netflix her show oh her show i do redo was supposed to be on netflix Boop. uh i do redo is now canceled kleinfelds dropped her Wow. And you know, Kleinfels doesn't give a fuck about any of this, yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, basically within 24 hours, all of these people dropped her. Let us talk about black women unity. So Tracy Moore yeah. on City Line posted something on uh, Instagram that talked about believing black women. Yeah. Right. Believing our stories. MP Selena. Yeah posted uh tweeted uh um a twitter thread 
So, and basically yeah. it's an open letter. I can't believe, begin to tell you how proud I am of you. You captured me in an 11 minute video. What life can be like when you stand up to powerful families and speak out against yeah. the establishment all while knowing you have everything to lose. Now that's a fucking subtweet. Yeah. Woo. That was, wow. Did listeners, she, she did you hear that say, subtweet? Okay. Yeah. So she goes on to say to wonder how you will manage, to wonder how your actions will impact your family. I understand because last year I was in the same position. When a powerful man told me on a phone call that there will be consequences to both me and my family for my decision. And we all know that man was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And this was a conversation around um, race, racism, anti-blackness um uh, in canadian politics yeah um but again i mean i read that and it like selena uh, has personally been such a hero for me and to again see how it doesn't matter if you're a staffer it doesn't matter if you're an influencer it doesn't matter if you are the democratically elected representative of canadian citizens white people will weaponize their power weaponize their privilege to put you in your place in your perceived place in their eyes right and again that was such a powerful subtweet oh and my selena gosh. doesn't disappoint right she doesn't disappoint and she never misses a beat girl yeah never no, no she is um I don't think people are aware of what kind of strength that woman has to withstand what yeah. she did. You all don't even know. You all get a get a hangnail and it's the end of the word. Your favorite rosé is out. Oh my gosh, we're crying. Like I've seen white women cry yeah. over cutting their hair and I want to punch them in the face because they yeah. really don't know what the fuck strength looks like. They don't know yeah. what what it takes to live in our bodies to live in this skin yet there's no other skin i would live in none yeah because my people no community i i'm about to talk about another issue at tsn and you should see how black the way black women and also um um elaine uh laney gossip laney yeah um laney gossip apparently we'll do an episode about this we're all waiting Mm -hmm. but speaking of laney gossip i'm going to use this as a to pivot into the next piece of canadianness so we have like four separate stories under one theme you all don't even know like this is how serious this problem is okay so um kayla gray is a TSN Sports Center anchor. And she hosts Sports AM too. Uh, so basically, she's a powerhouse, right? So, in yeah. other words, remember when you just said it doesn't matter how, where you are in the pecking order, you're still just a Negro to them who can be shit on. Okay. So. Let's talk about what happened to TSN over the weekend. So, um, okay. Uh, what happened? Uh, okay. So there was this white woman who Sherry Ford. Okay. 
Now, Sherry Ford is, I guess, somebody who does something in sports. I guess she covers sports for Sportsnet or something. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so she wrote a story about white privilege and she's like, I'm using my voice to help put an end to systemic racism. Girl, you didn't even describe systemic racism in that piece. Okay, so obviously there's a lot of people using these words who don't know what systemic racism is, but we're not surprised. So in the first, so basically Sherry is a white woman who is married to a black man. Oh, God. Right. So, and then she... We we now know where she's coming from. Yes. Her husband's name is Dwayne Ford. Okay? Um... And I think he's a sports thing person, too, or something like that. I think he... So he works for TSN, too. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, basically, she's Albertan. Oh, God, she's Albertan. (laughs) Okay, this is getting... this. Okay, I'm like, okay, I'm getting closer and closer to finding out what may happen. (laughs) Okay, okay. I'm so sorry. I'm like... Oh you my should have led with that. I should have led with it. Okay. So anyway, so Sheila wrote this story about, you know, facing her parents' racism while bringing this this black man home. You know, typical. Well, oh God, okay. funny enough, Sheila used the N-word, big and broad, in, in, in oh this God. piece. In her piece? In the first fucking paragraph twice. Oh, girl. Yeah. And with the hard R, it wasn't bleeped out. There were no stars. There was no No. N word. It was nigger. Okay. Hard R. Okay. And you know Mm -hmm. when it's the hard R, you know it's a fucking racist saying it. Okay. So, what's her name? Kayla is like, yo, this is triggering. Like, I don't like that you use this word um, in your piece. And then Sherry's like, well, my husband told me I could use it. Oh. And then Dwayne is like, I did tell her she could use it. Fuck you, Dwayne. Okay. So then, then some milk toast nobody what the fucker, okay, named uh, Tom McClure, okay, um, wrote some Twitter conversation some Twitter thread, sorry, about how this piece was so moving and it was met with oh open arms from professional athletes, coaches, sports broadcasters, and and every person is supportive of Sherry's story and then starts to oh, it say... it probably only validated... It, it's only because it probably validated their own use of the... Exactly. exactly so check out somebody who's speaking my language finally yeah yeah finally dude okay then dude says kayla gray made a choice many people thought it was wrong it seemed hurtful condescending lacked empathy and appeared to completely miss the point rather than stand down and allow this very important message to be absorbed she decided not to a missed opportunity So basically, Kayla, so instead of offering support to Sherry Ford and her family, she did the opposite. 
Yeah. Okay. And then, then, then puts in a Maya Angelou quote. And then. I, I have nothing to add to this. I'm just like listening. And then, okay. And then he wants an apology. Oh my God. For what? And then TSN and their mealy mouth nothingness put out some little stupid statement about how they respect people who want to express themselves freely. And I'm just like, you all are cowards. What in the freedom of speech hell? <laughs> I can't. Like, I just... Like, are you sure that wasn't just a Ryerson University statement? I, are you sure it, it was from it, the it, DSN? You know what? That's that's where it they went. awfully familiar. Well, apparently that's where they went after graduation. <laughs> it was TSN. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I don't understand. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. But yeah, so that was TSN. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. But not to be outdone, our final piece to this subsection of this week has to do. I saved the best for last. I saved the most egregious for last. Well, maybe not the most because Jessica Mulroney was pretty bad. Rex Murphy, y'all. Oh, God. Oh, my gosh. People, Bro, you just like keep attacking me with these. Oh, my gosh. OK, listen. <laughs> National Post journalists actually revolted for once in their lives, okay? And I find this completely hilarious, and you can hate me if you want to, but they've let a lot of shit slide. So for me, for them to revolt now, honestly, I find it hilarious. I find it too little too late, (laughs) and I find it, but you know what? You know, I'm here for it to talk about. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. So sometime... In like the last 10 days or something, I can't even remember June 1st, right? So, June 1st, I believe, was a Monday, and it was the Monday after the first round of or the when after protests start, yes, yeah. So, the public, so the National Post published a column entitled. Canada is not a racist country, despite what the liberals may say, by Rex Murphy, that denied the existence of systemic racism in Canada. Now, according to the National Post opinion editor, he said it was a fuck up. So, an email sent to Editor-in-Chief Rob Roberts on June 4th described Murphy's column as lazy and ignorant and dehumanizing to black and indigenous peoples. It was signed by around 30 jur- journalists, more than half of the post newsroom. The, the post newsroom has less than 60 journalists? <sighs> okay. For journalists of color. That's a whole other conversation. That's a, I know, I know. That's another conversation. I was just like, Erica, just, just go on. Just stick to the program. Okay. For journalists of color in the National Post newsroom, every time a piece like this is published, we feel more unwelcome at this paper and come closer to giving up on this industry, end quote, the email said. So, naturally, um, I can only guess 
that in Management Scramble, a subsequent town hall that lasted two hours was rendered. Post reporters grilled newsroom managers on how the column came to be published, why there hasn't been any public accountability, editorial independence, and the lack of diversity within the company. Roberts and Matt Gurney, the Post opinion editor, explained to staff that Murphy's column was published as a result of miscommunication where they thought the other was going to edit the piece, which had been discussed as a front page option. Now, this is like a whole Sure, Jan. Yeah, sure. I know. This is a whole <laughs> Whatever you say. This is a whole Spider-Man gif. Gurney said Murphy's column wasn't quote at the level that I thought it would want it to be in particular. He said in a statement declaring that Canada isn't racist, which ended up being the headline was indefensible. Okay. So it's indefensible. But how does an opinion piece get published with a title like that with a headline like that well and no one and like no one takes responsibility for it like that okay that like someone just take responsibility for it like we all know one of you approved it we all know that there's no way that an opinion piece like that would have gone to publication without an edit so just like save us all the time and just own up to it well here's the thing I just want to let everybody know that in media, um, the people who write the opinion never write the headline. Yeah. So, in other words, Rex Murphy would have submitted um, a piece probably about, uh, he would have filed it for however long it's supposed to be. So maybe it was maybe maybe he has a contract where he does an 800 word piece every week, right? So he would he would submit his weekly column, it would go it would have to go through edits, right? Even just for 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 grammar and spelling, right? Even if that's the the least of it. Second of all, the opinion editor would have had to have read at least scanned the piece to put yeah. a title on the piece. So I don't believe them. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it wasn't edited. I believe somebody saw something and they're just passing the buck. Just from yeah. the little that I know, I have never, ever, ever, ever written a headline for a piece. Never. It never is. And that's why I keep saying, yeah, information is, is undisturbed. Sure. Maybe. Okay. Data is undisturbed, fine. But the bias comes in in even collecting data. It's even acquiring information. You know what I mean? So the idea of objectivity and of not being biased is a fool's errand. Unless you think objectivity and being unbiased are two different things, which I suspect they are. Um, yeah. So, I mean... Rex, so the National Post is particularly, you know, shitty. Gurney and them were saying, oh, maybe we can have a conservative, a conservative case for Black Lives Matter. I'm like, fuck off. No. What? I mean, conservative or Black Lives Matter, pick one. 
What the fuck are you saying? That is like just, conservative or anything. That is one. It just like, goes to show how 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 much they how little they understand about a the world around them and the people they're they're trying to talk about. They yeah. don't know, and the ignorance is amazing. It is like a train wreck of just amazing amounts of like racism and massage noir and you know, sexism that as generation z would say the ignorance in this newsroom is astronomical wow okay that's it wow is what i have that, to that's say. For, for the gen zers out there dragging millennials today oh my gosh yeah <laughs> by the way i try telling people you need to stop talking about millennials like they're gen z because millennials are 40 yeah they're 40 I'm old. They they have mortgages, you know. I don't even know what I am because I'm like I was born in November '95. Oh, you're definitely like Gen Z, honey. Out here. Oh look, we have a yeah. guide to Gen Z. Maybe you could give us a guide one of these days. Oh, there's an Instagram <laughs> idea. Okay, so now that we've totally, so I I think I don't think we need to really you know go on about this. We all know Canadian uh, media is white. But this is a this is a crisis now for them. They're in crisis. They really are because they have neither the they can't even tell Canadian stories because they don't have the personnel. You know, they need to. And, you know, maybe if they stop looking to Conrad Black for like advice on black people, they might get somewhere. Rex Murphy. How did Rex Murphy become the cultural critic of of blackness? That's all they could get? They don't have any, like, columnists of color. Why do white people still get to tell us whether racism still exists or not? Why? At any place. And why do... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they don't. I, like, honestly, I'm not in... I'm not interested in having that conversation with them because... If you're not, if that's where you are, what that tells me is that you're not interested in listening. No. Exactly. All right. So that's our episode (laughs) for this week. We're going to be doing some pretty exciting things, which we will tell you about next week. Weekly. We'll let you know what we're up to. And um, honestly, I really have no outro for this. So (laughs) until next week, everybody. See you later.